0: Welcome once again into the Radiopedia Reading Room, a podcast unconcerned with books or poetry, tassiography or palmistry. It's a radiology <laughs> podcast. My name is Andrew Dixon and joining me once again, you could annihilate him, but he'll still spew out radiology anecdotes at 180 degrees to each other. <laughs> it's my co-host, Francesco Gaylard. Are
1: we reviewing Oppenheimer this week? <laughs> That would be great. Maybe we should just ditch the whole radiology thing and be yet another movie review yeah, podcast.
0: Yeah. Oh, is, there, is there movie review podcast? I've never heard <laughs> any. <laughs> no, I'm not talking about annihilating a whole city and unleashing havoc. Um, I'm talking about annihilating a positron and unleashing two ah. gamma rays in coincidence. So nuclear medicine. Unclear the medicine. For this week. Yes, unclear medicine. That's the theme for this week. But I guess... Gamma rays are kind of high energy photons, Gaylord, So that doesn't really work as an analogy for your anecdotes, mate. So you are <laughs> I reckon you're down the other end of the electromagnetic spectrum.
1: I I thoroughly resent that, Dixon. Are you implying like I'm um, radio waves or something? Or infrared or you know, I can go pretty much anywhere to get this kind of abuse. I don't need to come here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could put you as more. You're kind of in the visible spectrum, some, <laughs> some kind of brown or something. I don't know. <laughs> Look, I will admit though, mate, that um, when you speak about meat, like you did last week, you do you go full you go full gamma energy.
1: <laughs> get very excited about pseudo meat yeah, related dude.
0: topics. <laughs> yeah. So today we're listening back to a nuke med panel discussion recorded at Radypedia 2022 featuring Sally Ayesa, who's from Sydney, the central coast of New South Wales, and David Little from the UK. He's from Bath. And they're both radiologists who Mm -hmm. also trained in nuclear medicine. Um, So they chat about SPECT, CT and Theranostics in this episode. Uh, You know what Theranostics is, Gaylord? Uh,
1: I have literally no idea what that is. Is that like one of those slow cookers? (laughs)
0: <laughs> no that's a thermomix oh oh yeah right. <laughs> um that's where you cook your hot wet rice is oh yum <laughs>
1: is that the company lona homes or emma
0: homes or or someone started that was in the news <laughs> no that was theranos that's elizabeth Holmes, i think not, oh. a NOL, not a Nola Holmes. That was oh, a, is that a different thing? Oh, no, I've, look, I don't no. know. And it's not Thanos, if you're going to go Thanos next. <laughs> <laughs> that was a few episodes ago. No, no, Theranostic. Well, I won't tell you what it is because we're about to learn about it. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, this was recorded just after Sally had given a lecture entitled Diagnostics and Theranostics with PSMA and Dota Tape, and David a lecture entitled Clearing Up Unclear Medicine with Spect ct Uh, Both lectures can be found over on the website in the Nuclear Medicine Lecture Collection. So let's listen to their chat now, and then we'll be back at the end for some more high-energy Gaylord anecdotes.
2: (laughs) So I am now really grateful to be joined by my partner in crime in nuclear medicine here at Radiopedia, David Little. Welcome. I think you and I are making a bit of a habit about this. We seem to do this every single year—is get together and have a chat. So it's nice, to, nice to see your face and nice to have you back.
3: Thanks. It's a real pleasure to be here, and someone's got to represent for, for nuclear medicine.
2: Definitely. Who better than us too? Yes, I have to say I really loved the topic and um, the title of your talk. When you told me it was all about clearing up unclear medicine, my nuclear medicine heart just skipped a beat. I thought it was really fantastic. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, so a couple of questions from me. So. You know, when we're talking about SPECT CT, and it really has been the evolution of nuclear medicine from planar to 3D imaging, um, how have your referrers reacted to this change? Because really you're challenging the conception of what nuclear medicine has traditionally been and what they have grown and expected. So have you noticed a change in how they're ordering scans or their response to the new you know, way that we're doing things?
3: Yeah, so um, I think it's really interesting. I have really grown up with SPECT CT throughout my training. So it's something that um I've always done a lot of, and we've always done a lot of in my center. I I think it's been a bit of a kind of gradual change and a lot of our referrers are used to um, spec CT. So we used to do, Mm. before we got the new scanner that I talk about in in my talk, we used to do a combination of whole body planar and then single field of view spec CT of a kind of area of interest. We've now essentially completely replaced whole body planar imaging with whole body spec CT. And I think our clinicians generally really like it. They really like the, the fused imaging, um, particularly the rotating 3D fused images that they can use in clinic to show patients, mm,
2: that which beautiful. is really nice. Yeah, really nice.
3: Some have embraced it a bit more than others. So some of our musculoskeletal colleagues um, and orthopedic colleagues uh, really like it, particularly in the spine again, largely because they like the the 3D fused images I think all, all clinicians I think like pretty mm. pretty images that are easy to look at. Yeah. So they've embraced it from that point of view. Um, we have seen a bit of an uptick in in referrals from outside our local region to, to take advantage of the SPEC CT service that we offer, which I think is is encouraging and, and is a good thing. If anything, some of my colleagues have struggled with it a little bit more than others. For example, in multidisciplinary tree meetings, they used to be able to look at a whole body planar bone scan and, and give a reasonable comment on, on what was going on. But now it's a bit more difficult for them to to look at a, a whole body spec CT, partly because there's 1,000 images compared to two. Yeah. Um, so they've they've been on a learning curve as well, I think.
2: Yeah. And that kind of raises a really interesting question because, you know, I've grown up with spec CT as well. It's been one of the real proud things for our department. Like, I remember when I was orientated, they would show me old pictures of where they had an old CT scanner and they've kind of stuck a, um, an older spec camera on the front of it back, you know, long before I started there. Um, and it really has been part of my, my training as more of a junior specialist. So it's, you know, it's part of my DNA now, I guess, and the value of it. But, the images on our camera's not quite as pretty as yours, so I'd really love an upgrade <laughs> there. Um, but you raise a really interesting point about how our workforce and how our um, physicians are coping with the differences in technology. Um, you mentioned that, you know, there is that, you know, increase in time to re- interpret the study. It's no longer just two minutes looking at some planars, You've got to go through everything slice by slice. I, I know in Australia, the upskilling for, you know, CT skills has been something that it has been really important, particularly with PET-CT as well, now that we've got that kind of fused imaging. Um, What challenges have you felt um, has been faced in your workforce?
3: Yeah, so I look at this from a a kind of UK perspective, and I think the UK is a little bit different to to many parts of the world in that um, a lot of nuclear medicine in the UK is done by radiologists Mm. um, rather than nuclear medicine physicians. And radiologists obviously have a have a good background in cross-sectional imaging, yeah, yeah. Um, because it's a it's a key part of their training. I think there were some issues, particularly around when PET CT was was really taking off, and the the nuclear medicine physicians didn't necessarily have that experience in cross-sectional imaging. And as a result of that, there were some changes to the nuclear medicine curriculum in the UK. And it's now a kind of a combined curriculum: the first three years with clinical radiology oh. to, to equip equip those um physicians with that background um imaging knowledge particularly around cross-section um so i think that problem is is largely going away because the it's such a key part of, of their training mm. um, because obviously i mean there's so much ct to 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 what we do in nuclear medicine these days as you say with pet ct mm. uh, and increasingly with respect ct and it's mostly not entirely non-contrast ct which Um, has its own challenges to be able to look at and interpret.
2: Exactly. So I'm not
3: quite sure how the how the rest of the world is coping with that. I, I'd be interested to hear your experience from Australia. Yeah.
2: Well, because I've got a very different perspective as well. Because I came in as a radiologist before doing nuclear medicine training, and I guess even more unique that I was a nuclear medicine resident before I went and did radiology. So I've been hanging around for a while. Yeah. It, it is very different, and I have we are noticing that there's more radiologists who are becoming you know undertaking the advanced training in nuclear medicine than the physician pathway. In Australia, we have a dual pathway, so you can do nuclear medicine advanced training um, from basic physician training. So you do through um, a few years of basic physician and then three years of nuclear medicine on top of that. If you come in from the five-year radiology accredited training program, you'll do an extra two years. So they do doing build that extra one year to kind of, you know, acknowledging the difficulties in kind of moving into imaging and some of the that knowledge. But it can be tricky and, you know, the anatomy and working through that cross-sectional component and even some of the, I think the imaging theory working in a department and that cult of cultural shift, I think is, is something as well, um, that you need a little bit of extra time. But, you know, I'm clearly speaking to this from a radio, radiologist perspective. I know some of my nuclear medicine physician colleagues might very well come for me <laughs> after saying that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's really what I love about it. And particularly we've got like a, a hybrid, you know, radiologist and physician kind of model is that when we'll come to Theranostics in a moment, um, but you have this incredible interplay between different kind of areas of expertise and knowledge. So when we're, when you're working with things like treatments, even when I thought, I was trained by a really excellent physician who was just She was a thyroid clinician, really. She would see patients as a a physician as well um, with thyroid disease as well as being their nuclear medicine doctor. And so you won't learn that kind of skill anywhere else. And um, so it gives you a really rich learning environment and, um, you know, where you can draw on the different expertise of different different specialists, which is fantastic, I think.
3: Yeah, no, definitely. Mm. I agree.
2: So, coming back to a bit of a more technical aspect of this, um, of the SPECT CTs, especially with your really lovely new scan <laughs> that you're getting these whole body um, 3D images, we're losing. Your, I couldn't see with your cases that we had the whole body delayed planar. And I think you alluded to that earlier, because kind of my teaching was, specifically when you've done a bone scan three phase, you go, you know, flow, blood pool, delayed, all next to each other. So you can look for that comparative difference with areas of increased uptake against areas of inflammation, for example. So how have you kind of dealt with that change?
3: Yeah, so that's definitely been a, a learning curve. And yeah, you touch on the, the fancy new scanner that I talk about, which is a kind of revolution in, in yeah. um, spec technology really in, in two ways. So first of all, it's digital CZT detectors, and it also has a really innovative 360 degree detector design, which allows us to increase sensitivity and, and really get some really nice images that you'll see if you watch the talk. Mm. As part of that transition, as I said, we've essentially replaced planar imaging with, with SPECT imaging, and that has been a learning curve. We do have the ability to, to regenerate um, kind of virtual uh, planars from that data. Mm-hmm. Um, when, we, when we initially made that transition, we didn't do that. Um, we have, interestingly, started doing that, partly to facilitate comparison in patients who've had previous planar imaging, for example, mm, yeah. um, because it is slightly different looking at a whole body, spectrum it to two-planar to um, bone scans. Um, and also, our, um, as I touched on before, our, our, my radiologist colleagues find those images quite useful in MDTs because they can bring them up very quickly and demonstrate an abnormality. Hmm. With regards to the flow and the blood pool imaging, that's a really interesting area. So we're just dipping our toes really into 3D dynamic flow imaging, wow. which is yeah i mean some of the images are amazing, amazing. It, it blows my mind as i'm kind of scrolling through uh kind of space and time um looking at those images and uh, we haven't quite worked out the best way of displaying those images in order to be able to report them or necessarily what they uh, what they mean because we can now see where exactly where that flow is distributed on the dynamic studies
2: That's incredible. Uh, so that
3: that's a learning curve for all of us um, same with the blood pool so we get some really nice Blood pool spec CT. We do a CT with our blood pool images again to give us a really accurate localization of where that tracer is going. I mean, there's a whole load of, of, of research and work to be done there um, about the possibilities of of that side of of, of spec imaging, which is something that, as I said, we are at the very early stages of it. It's really exciting.
2: Yeah, that is so exciting and that completely blows my mind that we can do, you know, spec CT of blood pool. That's just, you know, given, you know, the traditionally how slow even the spec CT that I've been used to, you know, takes, you know, potentially, you know, 10, 15 minutes to do a single bed, so a single kind of here of a patient to now be able to do dynamic flows on a spec camera. That's really, really cool. Um, one thing I actually didn't touch on in my lecture, I don't think, um, you know, lim- limited time, was that we do dynamic um, scanning for our PSMA PET studies, particularly of the pelvis. So we'll do continuous acquisitions and get a dynamic um, acquisition of the pelvis in the early phases looking at blood flow. Uh, and that can be really useful because, um, you know, PSMA is excreted by the kidneys, there's a lot of bladder uptake. So potentially, given the prostate's right next to the bladder, it really does increase the risk, um, sorry, the chance, particularly if there's been a prostatectomy, of detecting local recurrence by using that dynamic imaging. So there's lots of really great applications for that, I think, that's you know popping out and helping us out.
3: I've got a few questions about your talk, which I also really enjoyed, if that's all right. Oh, thanks, David. Yeah, no, ther- theranostics is, is obviously a really growing area uh, in nuclear medicine generally. Um and you mentioned about the kind of multidisciplinary approach. And I wondered, certainly in the UK, there's been a lot of debate about who is best placed to to deliver this Theranostics revolution, whether that's nuclear medicine physicians or radiologists or oncologists. And I just wondered what your take on it and experience was in Australia.
2: Yeah. It, look, I have to say we've had the same experience. Like, you know, you there's a lot of discussions happening about who is responsible because essentially you're bridging that gap between Radiotherapy, which is being systemically administered um, in, you know, oncology patients who will all have a medical oncologist looking after them. So and then but it's being, you know, pioneered and driven by nuclear medicine. It, it's really interesting. At, at my department, you know, where the therapies are done within the nuclear medicine department, um, they are referred to us by an oncologist or a radiation um oncologist, depending on who's responsible for the care. There's actually a few really great medical oncologists, particularly with our metastatic neuroendocrine patients who work very closely with us. Occasionally, we will actually also have a neuroendocrine fellow who is usually an oncology um, fellow or a medical oncology fellow, rather, who comes and works with us to learn the therapies as well. We've got another one of our trainees at the moment. She's actually already trained as a medical oncologist, and she's doing dual training in nuclear medicine so she can work in theranostics. So there's that, um, because she's got that physician training already, it's got that potential for crossover. That it's interesting and because nuclear medicine and radiology are two separate colleges in Australia and what kind of complicates it or even kind of adds an extra level of complexity is that radiology and radiation oncology are the same college, um, two separate chapters within it. So the radiologists, and the radiation oncologists are kind of together and nuclear medicine is separate. And so trying to engage these two organizations to talk about best practice and how we can work together to, um, you know, to, you know, I guess regulate their agnostics as well. And then, you know, just across, we've got New Zealand and nuclear medicine is often pretty much done by radiologists there. So then you've got that extra level. So the New Zealand radiation oncologists have got a very different experience to the Australian radiation oncologists all being managed by this one body. So different communities have different needs, different levels of expertise. Um, and there's so much overlap between what we're doing. You know, we've got the systemic therapy, which is usually the med- medical oncologists, the radiation component, which bridges the gap between nukes and radiation oncology. And so it can be tricky. And then, when you add things like yttrium 90 SurSpheres, which is a liver-directed therapy, you bring the radiologists in as well, the interventional radiologists. And so, you know, you really, I think, the, you know, the best way forward and it always has been the approach at my site is, you know, we've got a really robust multidisciplinary team. I feel really confident going down the corridor to my radiology colleagues at NIR and going, hey, what do you think of this? They have the same ability to come down going, look, I injected that patient earlier today. Can we look at the pictures together? That has just been really one of the privilege of where I work. And I I know that particularly with our neuroendocrine tumours, given the complexity of the patients, um, they've often got multiple sites of disease, you know, it's slow growing, the treatments are limited, um, you know, with different stages as well, depending on the differentiation, how aggressive it is, you really need to engage um, all of those experts in our patient decision making. So I guess the short, it's kind of a long answer to a short question. It's just, you know, we're still trying to work it out. We're trying to work out how to regulate it and work together um, to, you know, make sure that we really advance this field because there's so much um, to gain in, in our community and with, for our patients with these therapies.
3: Yeah, I mean, as you say, it's a, a hugely and rapidly developing area, mm, I think, isn't it? Yeah, so much. <laughs> What do you think the future holds for kind of theranostics? Do you think there are going to be many more kind of focused traces to specific conditions? Do you think we'll move from a kind of a more palliative approach that you talk about in your talk to a potentially a curative approach in, in some cases?
2: Yeah, look, you know, I think that's the dream, isn't it? I, I think given that we're kind of still in the research realm and, you know, at the moment everything's – you can't walk into a consultation and tell – the patients, this is going to cure your cancer because it it just isn't. Um, but it can, you know, as I think I said in the talk, improve quality of life, you know, extend life, you know, stop things progressing at such a rapid rate in some patients, which is fantastic. But you know, and, and I think that that is the dream. We'd love to get to a point where we can deliver targeted radiation to tumours at a cellular level. And if we can get traces that are specific enough, I think you know, going right to where they need to be, you can increase the dose depending on. The specificity you know mm. that that'd be something you know fingers crossed you know within the next you know years to decades that'd be something that we'd love to be able to work towards one of the really exciting things about the gallium um, 68 lutetium 177 theranostic pair is that anything any kind of small molecule that you can develop which um, is take you know goes to a cell or sticks where it needs to go that you can whack a gallium on you can like whack a lutate on and provided the biodistribution's okay that it's not going to go to any you know physiological organs like the brain where you're going to give damage <laughs> so provided it's targeted well enough and the radiation dosimetry fits you have the potential to deliver targeted therapy and that's just so exciting and i know that you know a couple of years ago there was the really a lot of buzz about something called fapi um, which is one of the fibroblast activation protein inhibitors and that was very specific for um, certain tumor sites. This particular inhibitor was present in a lot of the cancers. Things like, you know, lung, breast, cholangiocarcinoma, sarcomas demonstrated really good affinity with this tracer. It, um, You put gallium onto it. So if you put gallium on, you can put lutetium onto it. Um, and the advantage I guess when you hear these cancers, it's like, well, well, yeah, but we can do lung cancer with FDG. But the thing is, we can't really use FDG for theranostics because it goes to the brain. So you can't give targeted therapy or high radiation doses to the brain, to the myocardium, you know, to the kidneys and you know, things like that. The biodistribution's all wrong. But when you get these new traces that aren't going to the brain, aren't going to the sensitive organs or to the radio-sensitive tissues, we're, we're potentially developing some really exciting new treatments there. Fingers crossed. I love, um, we've got a great, um, you know, our physics department and our scientists are always looking for these particular new traces to try out. And, um, yeah. yeah, so, you know, looking like a very kind of exciting developments on the horizon. So I guess watch this space and hopefully in Readypedia in a couple of years I'll be talking about something new and very exciting. So
3: <laughs> Yeah, I look, I look forward to it. I think, yeah, you're right. I mean, it's a really exciting time, isn't it, in, in nuclear medicine and theranostics in general. Um, mm. Plenty to keep us, us all busy, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, just a, a final, slightly more specific question. You talked obviously a lot about Gallium Data Pet in your talk. Uh, do you still use the like, kind of older traces, some of the spec traces like in the or have they been completely replaced?
2: They've been pretty much completely replaced. So when I was a resident before i even started my radiology training back in 2013 um we were using dotatate back then and we were one of the few sites in sydney's that used gallium 68 dotatate it was still kind of a new kid on the block at that point and goodness that was nine years ago how time has flown <laughs> but um even at that point we were not really using octreotide at all and given supply chain issues we don't tend to use a lot of indium in australia like it needs to be flown in from overseas and so okay. the great thing about dota is you know you have the generator sitting on your bit on um gas gallium 68 you've got the the generators Sitting on your desk, on your um, on your bench in your hot lab, um, where the the tracers are made, and you can just make it up. It's nice and quick, um, and it's so much cheaper and more logistically. It, it's a better tracer as well. It's more sensitive, specific, and lesion specific, with greater spatial resolution. So. Given the superiority of the study and, this, you know, the costs involved, you know, we swapped over to dotatate pretty quickly. Yeah. I've never actually reported an Indian octreotate study in my time. So. Oh,
3: wow. What I you- did one yesterday. Oh,
2: no. <laughs> wow. No, I'll have yeah, to. We're,
3: we're still doing, we, we don't have uh, quite the same access to, to gallium as it sounds like you do. So we, we are still doing um, some octreotides in those patients.
2: Mm. Let me go. I guess this is another watch this face, isn't it? <laughs>
3: Indeed, yeah. So uh, on on that note, just a kind of final topic of discussion. I know we're both um, fairly deeply involved in training. So how are we going to equip kind of the nuclear medicine physicians and radiology trainees of the future with the skills to be able to do all this kind of stuff?
2: That is such a great question, isn't it? Like, and it's what one of the, the issues, like with radiology training, we have curriculum outcomes. Not a lot. We don't expect our trainees to graduate radiology and be nuclear medicine physicians. There's an extra two years of training for that if you'd like to do it. But, you know, you've certainly got outcomes like, you know, interpret a basic bone scan and, and, um, you know, know your way around a lung, you know, a ventilation perfusion scan. I think even the octreotide studies was in our curriculum until very recently when we've stopped to date. Um, So, you know, when you've got these learning outcomes, it's really kind of the onus is on the educators such as us to make sure that they've got relatively good exposure, um, not only, you know, into good departments where they can have these learning experiences. And I think engagement from nuclear medicine physicians and dual trains with the education and also acknowledging the value of what we can bring to radiology training, I think is a really good first step. Because... I I do kind of get the sense that some of my trainees kind of look at nuclear medicine and go, oh, well, this is just a study shift. Then I don't really have to do too much at all. They don't do anything in the morning. And I'll just come for when they do a couple of reports in the afternoon. And it's like, it breaks, it breaks my heart. (laughs) And I try to be a bit enthusiastic and interested and talk about the really good things that we're doing, like these new traces, but um, it doesn't always work. What do do you think?
3: Yeah, I think you're right. And some of the things that you're saying sounds, sounds uh, unfortunately terribly familiar. I think you're right, enthusiasm of trainers is a key uh, aspect and, and, and demonstrating that functional imaging is, is really the function, the future of, of, of imaging, I think. Certainly in the UK, PET-CT is, is by far the most rapidly growing modality. Mm. Um, SPECT is yeah. probably up there as well. It is going to be a really important part of, of, of a radiologist's career, whether or not they're involved directly involved, because they're going to be seeing these studies in MDTs. They're going to be expected to engage in that MDT discussion.
2: Yeah, they're going so, to ask the questions. Uh,
3: Exactly. Yeah. So I think it does need to be probably a bit more deeply embedded than it already is in existing curricula. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I guess it's just kind of more sessions like this and, you know, improving the access to education and being present and, you know, being welcoming, I guess. So call out to all of my nuclear medicine colleagues in Australia, New Zealand and around (laughs) the world. Please be welcoming to the radiology registrars. You know, we'd love to see them more engaged with our subspecialty. So because I certainly really love being a part of it.
3: Yeah. Same in the UK.
2: Yeah. Uh, David, thank you so, so much for joining me. Like, it's always such a pleasure um, to to chat nuclear medicine with you and um, I I guess geek out a little bit. Um, And thank (laughs) you for your lecture. It was excellent. I really, I I love seeing all of the great things that you're doing over in Bath.
0: Ah, Thank you to Sally and David for sharing that chat with us. Sally. Now, Sally definitely brings the the gamma, full gamma energy. Absolutely. Gala. You could take a leaf out of her book. Yes. Uh, they do love getting together each year, those two, for a chat at our conference. In fact, they love it so much that this year, uh, so actually next week is the conference, they'll be getting together for 90 minutes' worth of chat. So they're presenting an interactive case workshop on day four, highlighting the use of nucle- nuclear medicine as a problem-solving tool uh, I did get a sneak peek at this one. It's really, really good, actually. Perfect for you know the non-nuclear medicine radiologists. Great cases, lots of interesting applications. So definitely worth checking out.
1: So I'm not going to be able to restrain myself here, Dixon. So love nuclear medicine, thinks it's awesome. Love nuclear medicine people, think mm-hmm. they're awesome. And I don't know what it's like in other countries. But this whole business of segregating nuclear medicine from radiology and having additional years of study, it's just licensing gone insane. (laughs) And it drives me just crazy because it's bad for everyone except potentially, I don't know, the colleges, but not even in Australia because it's the one college, right? So the idea that I can go out like today and sign up to do a locum in Northern Territory, Bundaberg, and I can do synology for antenatal scans <laughs> when I spent a total of eight weeks 20 years ago doing it, and that's perfectly fine, right? Mm-hmm. I can just read off, I don't know, head circumference. Is that a thing? Femur length? That's a thing. Yep, diameter. And that's absolutely fine. And I can also, at the same poor locum, Go and report ankle MRIs and inject things. <laughs> and that's absolutely fine. <laughs> but that, for me, little me, the neuroradiology geek, to report a CT SPECT or a PET CT of the brain in neurodegen conditions, oh no. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. That's a
0: whole other thing. You don't understand the traces, mate. You could, couldn't possibly.
1: This is, it's just bullshit.
0: It's complete. <laughs> bullshit. This is great. I love this energy. This is good. I'm going to call this, I'm going to call this a gamma rant.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it's the same like stuff that you hear about in the US where there are certifying boards for everything, right? So if you want to be a dental hygienist in California, you have to be like a member of the dental hygienist board or whatever. And (laughs) And each of these little colleges or boards or licensing bodies certifies some people and charges fees and protects it. And if you want to move to a different state, then, oh, no, that's the, you have to now go to the, my American geography is terrible. I can't even think of a state that's next to California. Washington, I think Washington state. Yeah, Yeah, let's say if you go to Washington, oh, no, you know, your dental hygienist board of California isn't recognized. And this is, this is bad for patients. It's. It's just protectionism. It's like mobsters who come up to you and say, oh, it's a really nice fruit shop you've got here. It'd be terrible if something horrible were to
0: happen. (laughs) Uh, This is is really good. This is really good. So what you're saying (laughs) is that balding men in Australia shouldn't have to travel all the way to Turkey to get their hair plugs done, right? Exactly. They should be able to just get them done here at a reasonable price by anyone who's willing to do it. Look, I think
1: there is, uh, it's really easy to say that the reason that these things exist is to protect patients, right? That saying those words is really easy and everyone can agree mm. that the public, whoever the public is, should be protected from scam artists and incompetence. And, and that's true. There's no disagreement here. The disagreement is whether licensing bodies actually achieve that goal. And I don't think they do because the licensing bodies that license me allow me to do antenatal screening in Bundaberg, <laughs> but don't allow me to do a spec CT for dementia. Mm-hmm. So they're not protecting anyone. I shouldn't be allowed to do antenatal ultrasound. It's crazy. <laughs> And I get emails every week about locum positions up in, you know, some backwater places that you only ever fly over when you're on your way to a holiday. And they pay really good money and you could go there and they pay for the flight. They play for the hotel and you sit there and they shove 150 studies in front of you and you report them. And it doesn't matter what it is. And you just read them off the form. and And that's, you know, that's not protecting the public. Frank should not be allowed to report antenatal ultrasounds. (laughs) Uh,
0: The the stark contrast between the energy you brought, and I couldn't have predicted it, the energy you brought (laughs) to a discussion on virtual reality and augmented reality last week, very low. I would have thought that would be in your wheelhouse. This week, a discussion on nuclear medicine. I thought, oh, God, it's going to be hard to get him up for this one. And he's straight into it. This is great.
1: Well, you know, it's just the way it is. Someone has to actually say this out loud.
0: Are we going to say anything else about nuclear medicine?
1: Honestly, by the time the first mention of licensing came on in the talk, I only heard a pulsatile tinnitus in my ears as my blood pressure went up and, and the rest faded out. I didn't even get to to what theramix was.
0: <laughs> you didn't even find out about the hot, wet rice. <laughs> <laughs> oh uh, very funny very funny uh anything else to say Galo? before we wrap it up
1: well i mean sally makes me feel old ancient <laughs> in fact she said something like oh when i was a resident before i even started radiology trading in 2013 I was, oh my god when do you think we peaked dixon have we like are we hanging around and taking up valuable space that younger, more energetic people like Sally should be?
0: I think so. <laughs> this week, definitely.
1: <laughs> you've been having a rough week.:
0: <laughs> Oh yeah, no, you've, yeah I'm absolutely on board with stepping aside this week. That's for sure. <laughs> way too busy. So if you're an enthusiastic radiology educator out there, uh, please send in your application to replace me. You know, preferably by facsimile. That's what we like, don't we, Frank? (laughs) (laughs) Clay tablet. Yeah. That's right. All right, let's wrap this baby up. So how can people get in contact with us, Frank?
1: Well, we're at Radiopedia on Twitter and Instagram as well as at Frank Gaylard and at Dr Andrew Dixon. And you can email us at podcast at radiopedia.org with ideas, feedback, and whether you think I have been terribly unfair towards (laughs) the fine folks in all dental hygienist, legislating bodies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Send in your suggestions for who should replace me and who should re- replace Frank. Take into account, of course, the relative waveform frequency that each of us brings to the, the podcast, although your energy this week, the, the gamma <laughs> rant, especially good. Uh, and if you want to help support Radiopedia, then you can become a paid supporter via the website or purchase... An all access pass to our online courses and conference. The conference is next week, Gailard. That's possibly why we're both a little delirious. It uh, is. So by registering for the conference, you'll be helping us to give free access to people in 125 low and middle income
1: countries. Even if you can't attend much of it live, don't forget yep. that the interactive playback features are designed to make it really an awesome on-demand experience as well. So you've really yeah. got no excuse. And on that note, I recently attended a, another well-known conference that will remain nameless as On Demand. Mm-hmm. And this is a little bit like, have you ever volunteered at the school of your kids? Have you ever yes. done that to go yeah, in yeah, and yeah. read something, right? Yeah. yeah. You go there and you think, oh, why, am I, why did my wife put my name down for this? I don't want to do it. But then you go and you come out of it and you think, wow, my kids are doing pretty well. I thought they were a bit slow, but no, like it's it's pretty good. Going to another conference makes me realize just how amazing what we've built is. The video wouldn't play, it was laggy, the recording was lousy, the audio was crap. I think you particularly have done an amazing job with our conferences to really make them stand head and shoulders above the average on demand experience.
0: Yeah, we did a full live test. Yesterday, actually, and the the coming through perfectly in high resolution, the live chat working, the interactive review questions, the cases loading below the video. You can scroll through and interact like, you know, it's working a treat, which is good. Yeah. Uh, next week, we don't plan to have a single podcast episode. Instead, we're going to have daily mini episodes for each day of the conference. So five little mini episodes, one cocktail and, and maybe oh, one excellent. pet Goat per day, Gaylord. Oh,
1: are we doing a, a matching flight of cocktails
0: and goats? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Pair them up. There's probably not going to be time for any gamma rants during the conference. <laughs> Maybe it may be a little bit niche uh, for people who haven't experienced the podcast before to hear one of your Gamma Rants. So we might hold mm. that back. All right. And then after the conference, we actually plan to switch to fortnightly episodes, don't we? Oh, think? thank Rather God than weekly, for that. Yes. Just to make things a little bit more sustainable going forward. We do enjoy doing the podcast. We do don't indeed. We? It'll be. Once every two weeks instead of once a week, unless, of course, we get replaced by energetic young radiologists, mm. uh, in which case it might be a daily podcast with webcams and glitter bombs or something. Who knows? Influencers. Yeah. <laughs> but if it's Frank and I, then for the foreseeable future, it's going to be, be two weeks to try and make it a little bit more sustainable. And that
1: just means a higher frequency of meat-related updates. Because the meat the meat news story pace is pretty slow, you know. There's not that much meat-related stories coming out every week.
0: <laughs> um, I've got to do this bit. And, and what else can people do to help us out, Frank? Well,
1: you can, of course, help us by leaving a five-star review in the podcast app of your choosing.
0: Awesome. Thank you very much, Frank. I'll see you next week at the virtual conference, and we'll be here doing five little episodes, one cocktail per day. And do we have to out. drink them each time? I reckon. I reckon we should. Right. And we're going to have a couple of special guests for a few of those episodes Excellent. as well. All right. So we'll catch you all again sometime soon, five times next week in The Reading Room. <laughs> Stay right, everyone. Stay right. Bye. Bye-bye.